It's me, David Webb, and here's a highlight from today's show on Sirius XM Patriot. Key primaries playing out, so it's a little early to tell. Uh, things like early voting in Georgia uh, being discussed uh, in some of the news media, but that's, uh, that's what happens. Harry Wilson uh, joining me now, a candidate for governor uh, in New York, uh, and with a business background, Harry, um, the business of managing New York State. Uh, first, uh, welcome to the show. First time we've Thank met, you. interviewed. Good to have you here. Yeah, great to be with you. Great to see you again. I think the last time we saw each other was probably during 2010 when you were running uh, Tea Party 365 and I was running for state controller. But uh, it's great to be with you. Uh, that's wh- okay. That's why it stuck out. <laughs> yes, you introduced me at a Staten Island event for sure. That part I definitely remember because I remember shaking your hand. Uh, but I think there may be a couple other times we met during that during that period. Yeah. Hey, look, those years go by fast, don't they? <laughs> they they, <laughs> they really sure do faster do. every year, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I know. You know, we we need that again in this country as a whole. All right, so let let's dive into your race. And as you just mentioned, you've run for comptroller before, which goes along with the business background. And you know, when you talk about the business of running a state like New York, one of the largest economies, not just in the country, but really larger than countries around the world, uh, what's been the point or some of the main failure points by the Democrats? Sure, absolutely. And, and unfortunately, it's a super long list, but I'll start with some of the biggest problems. You know, fundamentally, we have a failed uh, class of career politicians, mostly on the other side of the aisle in Albany that have mismanaged our state for a long period of time. And so we have the highest taxes in the country, the highest cost of living in the country, we have skyrocketing crime across the state. Uh, we have a culture of corruption in Albany, which I think enables part of these horrible decisions and policies. Uh, and so we need to clean house and we need someone who has the track record of actually coming into broken organizations, which I've done successfully for 30 years at the highest levels of American business to turn around New York state. I'm not running to manage the decline uh, I'm not running just to say no to the other side, which anybody with common sense would do. I'm running to actually fix this state because it is so badly broken that just managing the decline is not, not an option. We have to fix it. Um, and so that's uh, so that we get into the specifics, David. It starts with you know the budget and spending. Um, you know we have a 224 billion dollar budget, as you know, twice the size of Florida's. Well, what people don't spend as much time thinking about is how far out of whack we are with other deep blue states. So Massachusetts, right next door, similar sets of issues and challenges, uh, obviously heavily Democratic state. Uh, and yet Massachusetts, if you adjusted it for the fact that it's smaller, their budget would be about $70 billion smaller than New York's. That's how far out of whack New York is. And that's why you need an expert who could actually rebuild that budget from scratch, from the ground up, so that every program serves the people and not special interests, but really delivers better results uh, at a lower, much lower cost. And I'll add one more, one more thing in my comparison to Massachusetts, and this, this really uh, uh, should call every New Yorker who pays taxes, anybody, any, anybody who cares about our country, is that Massachusetts spends that you know, $70 billion uh, apples to apples less, but they have the best public schools in the country. They have the best public health in the country. Well, meanwhile, New York is in the third quartile on public schools with some really horrible um, uh, communities that are not serving their kids and robbing a generation of kids of, of opportunity. Uh, and we have the lowest public health in the country. You know, we're ranked 49th or 50th on a lot of measures for public health. And so we have a total lose-lose where we have terrible results 
at the highest possible cost as opposed to excellent results at the lowest possible cost. My guest, Harry Wilson, a New York gubernatorial candidate, a businessman, as we're talking about the business issues here, Harry. Uh, you know, the baby formula shortage is getting the, the headlines, and it should. Uh, but how we got to that point from a business perspective, uh, New Yorkers all across this country, and as a matter of fact, we're the only country dealing with a baby formula shortage right now. Yes, it, it is a, uh, absolutely horrible for young families. The notion, so our, we have four daughters. Our youngest is now 13, so we're not in the, the baby formula phase anymore. Uh, but we were for, you know, close to a decade between the four of them. And the thought that you had to worry in the United States of America in 2022 about whether you could sufficiently feed your infant, is, it, is, it is the most un-American thing I could think of. We were getting food airlifted to us from other countries. Are you kidding me? And, and so I actually did an interview with Fox um, last week where I kind of laid out the case for all the failures. Now, obviously, Abbott, which is the plant that was offline for several weeks, was part of it. But I, uh, and that's obviously not acceptable and needs to be addressed. And Abbott's apologizing, trying to make amends and setting aside um, capital to, to reimburse families. Um, that's a good first step. But there are so many of these, so many of the underlying issues, David, were driven by incompetence coming out of Washington. Now, why do I say that? It's, it's multiple folds. So you've got the, the macro issues, which are that because the Biden administration poured $2 trillion of stimulus onto a rapidly recovering economy in March of 2021, that plus the Fed's policies are the two biggest drivers of inflation today. And that inflation not, does not just increase prices, which obviously hurts everybody, but it also has led to labor shortages, uh, freight challenges, supply chain challenges, all that kind of excess demand is fueling all of that. And so, so we actually were not in a great spot on infant formula supply prior to the Abbott plant coming offline, and the Abbott plant coming offline uh, tipped us over. So that is really driven by bad policy out of Washington. Then beyond that, knowing that that's happening, right, because we've known about supply, people have been talking about supply chain issues for more than a year, as they should, and super important, but knowing that's happening, the Biden administration failed to act when there's a whistleblower who called them, called the FDA in October of 2021 to report possible issues at the Abbott plant. That person wasn't even interviewed until uh, December. The plant wasn't even inspected until the end of January. And then three weeks later, it was shut down, taken offline. So there are two huge problems with that. The first is, if there was a, a, a more significant, and, and it's not clear exactly how deep the problem was, but there's still a problem serious enough to take it offline. Infants were at risk for their health and their lives. You can't take three and a half months to get to the heart of a problem. That should be hours or days, not, not months. And so that's bureaucratic ineptitude because we have a government that's too big and, and does nothing well. Um, but then the second part of it is, um, is they didn't, you know, knowing that this was an issue, they should have gone to other manufacturers and said, what can we do to help you or encourage you to increase supply because we already have a shortage. If there's a problem here, it's going to get worse. And they never did that. They never did that. In fact, they didn't do that in, not only did they not do it in October, they didn't do it in February, they didn't do it in April. They finally started doing it in May when the press started hammering them, which is a terrible way to make decisions. Uh, and there are a bunch of other things they could have done. For example, you know, we have suppliers in Canada and in Europe that are you know, manufactured to more or less the same standards, but because of bureaucratic red tape, they're not allowed to sell in the United States or sell under WIC, which is about where half of families get their baby formula. 
And so, we, again, we could have worked with them to address any issues. They're mostly around labeling. It's not around safety or nutrition. It's around labeling, which is, you know, not, obviously not that important. Um, and so they just kind of failed over and over and over again. And the thought of these young families with infants being worried about where they can get uh, infant formula, the, 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 you know, kind of, you know, we've seen stories in the press about people flying across states to find formula or to get formula. That's just outrageous. Um, so a big part of what I focus on, David, is that, you know, what, what do I think the biggest challenges we face as a country and as a state are that we have a very low caliber of people in public life on both sides of the aisle. We have people who are more interested in getting reelected than they are in actually solving problems and, and making the, the country and, this, and New York State a better place to live and work. And this FDA debacle with the infant formula is, is prime example. There's nothing more basic than be able to feed your, your baby. And, and we couldn't even protect families on that. They're too big, too bureaucratic, and too inept. My guest, Harry Wilson, gubernatorial candidate and, and uh, businessman in New York. All right, Harry, let's talk the nuts and bolts of a, of a campaign and how you get there. In a primary, uh, you're reaching out to the base, the Republican base primarily. Of course, uh, some may change or come over to vote. But in this case, when you're asking the base and you're going up against the, well, they've got the candidate uh, chosen by the party, Representative Lee Zeldin, two other strong runners. Uh, you've got uh, Rob Astorino. You've got Andrew Giuliani, son of Rudy Giuliani. And then the base uh, that you're reaching out to is one that you have, at least in Republican quarters, been at odds with at time. Uh, you were a Barack Obama appointee. Uh, you've donated to uh, to Democrat candidates. Uh, that's a question for many voters out there. You also donated to Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg. Uh, Representative Jim Hines, someone who played a very prominent role in the first impeachment of President Trump, uh, and current Secretary of Commerce, Gina Raimondo. So with those questions on the table, you know, a path to victory in a primary, uh, how do you, having gone through the petitioning process and gotten on the ballot, how do you ask the Republican voters for their vote? Sure. Well, let me, let me explain uh, a couple things about that. One is, remember, I was the Republican and Conservative Party nominee for state controller and the best performing candidate statewide in the last 20 years. So, that, you know, I, the, <laughs> the base is my base. We have the same values and philosophies. Um, the, two th- the two things you mentioned, let me talk about each of them. So um, I served our country in a time of crisis and during the financial crisis. I have this deep skill set of being able to fix broken companies. And the administration, which, you know, as you know, TARP was passed by the Bush administration, and then uh, Obama was elected. And um, the, the investments were made in both financial services and the auto industry by TARP under both uh, presidents. And we were in the, on the verge of a second Great Depression in early 2009. So I have a skill set of fixing broken companies. I was brought in to help um, fix General Motors. I led the turnaround of General Motors, the most successful industrial restructuring of all time. At the time we came in, GM was losing $4 billion a month, paid for by the taxpayers in full. And the reason I volunteered, David, was because I had this uh, mental nightmare of bureaucrats and treasury taking our hard-earned dollars that were already in TARP and blowing it and making things worse. Because what I do for a living and done very successfully is really hard work. If you don't know what you're doing, you're going to screw it up. (laughs) And so I volunteered as as a service to our country. And it didn't matter to me who the president was because we were in a crisis. 
Um, what, what was I supposed to do, wait four years? Uh, for now, it would have been seven years for a Republican president and then help? No, I'm going to help our country because I put country first. And that's what I did, and we saved a million jobs and, and, um, you know, and, and really made a big difference. Uh, in terms of the donations, so I have given uh, – I've been a very active political donor for – you know, basically my entire adult life. Uh, I care deeply about conservative principles and, and the Republican Party. In that period of time, I've given away millions of dollars. I have given money to four Democrats out of, I don't know how many dozens and dozens, maybe more than 100 candidates, I don't even know. Uh, all four of those Democrats are people I've known for 30 years. They're not people I necessarily agree with, but they're old friends, people I've known a long time. And the total money for those four people out of the millions I've, I've put into political campaigns, and both my own and others, is seven thousand dollars? <laughs> so you know, uh, President Trump famously gave a lot more money than that to Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris. Right? No one questions his conservative principles, nor should they. Um, and that's my my point is, it is less, far less than one tenth of one percent of what I've given to people I've known for a long period of time, and I don't agree with. So that has nothing to do with my personal philosophy or you know who I am as a person. It's because I'm you know I I help old friends. Um, Right, and I, I can understand that, but to be fair, let's use the example of an Alvin Bragg. Mm-hmm. Alvin Bragg is a Soros-supported candidate. He was barely polling north of 2% in his run. He was clear about his policies. His day one memo, which came out at the beginning of this year, laid out a path to the failures in New York. He was upfront about this. And it's not just about the money, but supporting someone, even if you have a relationship, whose policies run completely contrary to good policing, good prosecution, and good judicial process is a question that, you know, I as, well, one, as the, as the uh, interviewer have to ask, how does that in any way explain that donation when it's contrary to the principles you believe in? Yeah, and this is really important to understand the, the facts behind this, David. So, so the reason I gave that one contribution was in June of 2020, and a mutual friend from college organized the Zoom event to, to talk to Alvin and, and reconnect with a bunch of people who we're in college with. And everybody, uh, everybody on that call gave, gave a contribution. And in that call, we never talked about policy. We just, you know, remember, this is June of 2020. Uh, no one had seen anybody, and I hadn't seen Alvin in years, uh, but no one had seen anybody uh, for a long uh, time because of the pandemic. And uh, we just basically talked about, you know, our families, how's everybody doing, how are your kids, how's everybody holding up, that kind of stuff. So I had no perspective on his views at that time because we never talked about it. What I did know about him was that in college he was a moderate Democrat and that he had spent 20 years as a prosecutor. So the notion that he would become a woke DA was never on my radar screen, and he had never talked about it in the call that we had or, as far as I know, publicly at that time in June of 2020. Now, obviously later he did. And when the memo came out, the day one memo came out, uh, it was right around the time that I was starting to explore a, a potential run for governor. And the New York Post called me and they said, what do you think? And I said, it's absolutely unacceptable. It is terrible policy. Uh, it doesn't matter whether I know him or not. I would fire him on day one under the governor's authority under Article 13 of the state constitution. And uh, I've since you know, said that many times since then. We have our a 14-page crime plan where one of the key principles is firing rogue DAs who don't enforce the law. And so it's something I feel strongly about. Uh, because I think it's essential to public safety. But if I had ever thought that Alvin would do that, I never would have given him a dollar, whether I knew him or not. 
Um, but that wasn't the basis of, you know, of that, that initial conversation. It was people reconnecting during, the, you know, the early uh, height of the pandemic. Um, so that's and that's why, and, you know, contrast that, to Dave. And by the way, just to be clear, I wish I had not done it. <laughs> I would gladly take it back if I could, um, but I can't. And so all I can do is tell you the facts behind it. Um, contrast that. So that's that's seen as my greatest sin and probably is. Um, but contrast that to um, some other people running who spend years mismanaging budgets, voting for tax increases, um, using tax, their taxpayer-funded salaries to run for other offices. I think my 15-second sin, which ultimately was irrelevant to that campaign, was a tiny portion of, of his money and my tiny portion of what I've given. And I've never done anything else to support him. I've never you know, talked about him. I've, never, I've, I've only criticized him. Um, I just think that that, even though, again, I'm not no claim to be perfect. I've made a mistake. Uh, but I think that sin, if you will, is a lot less bad for um, state than what some of my opponents have been doing in their, in their professional careers for years. Let's uh, table that and, you know, giving you the respect of your answer. It's understandable uh, reconnecting with old friends. Uh, so I think that's a fair point. Uh, I, I have to, in the same uh, breath, ask you about Representative Jim Himes, who was well known over the years for his politics, even prior to office. Uh, but you also gave to Jim Himes, uh, and this is someone who was not just a voter, but a, a key player during Trump's first impeachment. And, uh, you know, given what we also know now, which is hindsight, and I under, you know, that's fair to put that on the table in that context, we now know about the fake dossier, the fake collusion, the constant narrative, but you donated to Representative Jim Himes. Well, and let's, let's go through the timing on that So, uh, and, and the background. So I, I gave him, I believe, two contributions about 15 years ago, long before anything to do with the impeachment and his work there. And, yes, he, he has always been um, far more liberal than me. We worked together at Goldman. He was, um, uh, you know, a, a bit of a, uh, you know, we worked together closely on a, on a couple deals. And, you know, that's why I, I gave him the two donations. We knew each other in almost 30 years. And so uh, he also, you know, he also went to Harvard undergrad, but he was a few years older than me, so we didn't overlap in college. I met him when we worked together. So that's, and that's the same thing for Dean Romano. We were in the same dorm in college, and Elizabeth Caputo was the fourth um, uh, person that I gave my to. We were also in the same, actually the same organization that uh, Bragg and I were in, as was Elise Stefanik, by the way. Um, uh, several years later, uh, at least as, as much younger than I am. So, but you know, it's it's a that's those are the four uh, out of 30 years, and you know, again, millions of contributions, seven thousand dollars. So it's a that's that's you know, and again, in each of these cases, I don't agree with them on the vast majority of things, uh, but that's that's the history um, with them. Well, I certainly hope I've been fair. I ask the questions, give you a chance to put your answers on the table. Uh, Harry, uh, that's uh, the job, as they say, and uh, your outreach to the voters includes, you know, those and needs to be those explanations, uh, whether of donations or votes or past activity. Uh, those are two that stuck out in the media. Sure. No, and I think that's fair. I'm, I'm glad you asked because I want people to know the, the backstory. You know, you could also ask about I've given money to every single Republican congressman and woman in uh, New York State, including Congressman Zeldin. And, uh, and so, you know, I kind of gave money to Rob Astorino and raised money for Rob Astorino and gave and raised money for Rudy Giuliani. So I've been active in lots of 
um, uh, political stuff, but 99.9% has been for conservative Republicans, uh, with most of that in New York State. Um, so that's, and that's, and that's, that's what I think people should be assessing. Um, you know, Ed Koch used to say, as you probably remember, uh, that if you agree with me on a nine out of 12 things, vote for me. If you agree with me on 12 out of 12, you should see a psychiatrist. <laughs> and, and I think, look, you know, where I, where I, uh, I'm, I'm not going to pretend to be perfect. No one is, but I, but I, what I do offer that's very different from any other candidate is, is three things. One is I'm the only candidate running who has spent 30 years fixing failed organizations, which is what New York State desperately needs. Secondly, um, I'm the only candidate who's come close to winning in the last 20 years. I almost beat the popular incumbent, Tom Napoli, when you and I first met back in 2010. No one else has come within 13 points of winning. So I think I have by far the best shot in winning in November. Um, I think um, uh, most of us running are limited government conservatives. I think you know one of the candidates has flip-flopped a bunch of times and supported some other policies, but certainly Astorino and Giuliani and I are all limited government conservatives. And then the last thing I have is I have a, a different biography. I'm a you know, first-generation Greek-American kid from a working-class family in upstate New York. I'm the only upstater, a native upstater in the race on the Republican side. But, you know, when my family came here, my dad was born here. Both his parents were Greek immigrants. Uh, and my mom was a Greek immigrant herself. She came to the U.S. 11 months before I was born. So and when she came, she didn't speak a word of English. She only spoke Greek at home. So I didn't learn English until nursery school. And, you know, my dad was a bartender in my uncle's restaurant. My mom operated a sewing machine in a local factory. I worked my way through high school and college, including cleaning bathrooms in college to pay the tuition bills. The first of my family to go to college went to Harvard and Harvard Business School. And I've been blessed to have this incredible business career of fixing companies that you know, both saved hundreds of thousands of jobs and created a lot of value. And that's exactly the, what I want to do for the people of the state of New York. I think it is unconscionable that career politicians in Albany are destroying what, was, what once was the greatest state in the country destroying what once was the cradle of opportunity, a cradle of opportunity that I benefited from enormously, and so many other people have too. And it is not acceptable to me that that same set of opportunities is not available to every New York kid today. And the only reason it's not is because of horrible policies coming out of Albany that we can fix with the right leadership of someone to actually turn Albany upside down, rebuild it from the ground up, and make it serve the people of the state. The same question I'll ask uh, every New York candidate who comes on this show between now and the primary is this. Uh, When the primaries are over, the people have made their choice. Will you go to work to get a Republican elected in New York? Absolutely. Absolutely. I have have said that uh, publicly many times. I will support the nominee, whoever it is. Obviously, I want it to be me. I think it'll be me. But whoever it is, whoever the voters pick, I will support and and do everything I can to help them get elected. Um, You know, Mr. Astorino has said that. I believe Mr. Giuliani has said that. Uh, Congressman Zeldin has pointedly not said that. In fact, the spokesperson said in the New York Post a couple weeks ago that he will be on the conservative line in November no matter what. I don't actually believe that. I think that's a total lie. I think that you know, he doesn't really want to fragment the party and, and give and hand the party uh, the election to the Democrats. Um, but you should ask him that because that's what his spokesperson said in the New York Post a couple weeks ago. Harry Wilson, gubernatorial candidate, uh, businessman, his website, harrywilsonforgovernor.com. Again, that's harrywilsonforgovernor.com. Harry, thanks for uh, being here on the show and thanks for taking the questions. Thanks, Dave. Great to be with you. Really appreciate the time and and reconnecting as well. Same here. You can join me live on The David Webb Show Monday to Friday, 9 to noon east on Sirius XM Patriot 125.